0: He's the creator. Isn't he obligated to to love us and forgive us? His love isn't so much a choice as it is his job. Or maybe you doubt God's love for you. As you survey your life and the trials and circumstances that you've gone through, you wonder how God could possibly love you and allow what has happened to have happened. Maybe it's the ways you've been sinned against. You wonder, does God really love me? Or maybe it's the sins you've committed. You think there's no way after what I've done that God could possibly love me. You, by your bad behavior, have perhaps disqualified him from, you've disqualified yourself from his love. Why would God love you? This morning, we turn to the book of Malachi. As we consider God's electing love, his choosing love, as we begin a five-week series there. So uh, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn there now if you've not already. Malachi was written in approximately 460 years uh, B.C. before Christ. And so just to understand how we get to Malachi, we've got to understand Israel's history as a whole. Seeing as this comes at the very end, Israel was founded around 1400 B.C., so that's when God saved his people out of Egypt, out of slavery uh, with Moses, 1400 BC. He brings his people into the promised land. Uh, and then around 1000 BC, God makes covenant promises to King David. Uh, so David was Israel's second king. He was a great king. He loved the Lord. And so the Lord made gracious promises that one of David's descendants would rule over David's kingdom, over the kingdom of Israel forever forever. Israel enjoyed unprecedented military success and prosperity and peace. Yet soon the nation fell into sin. Uh, for hundreds of years, in fact, the nation rebelled against the Lord and against his word. They broke the covenant that God had made with them back in 1400 BC, the, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant at Sinai. God had told them, look, if, if you will obey my voice, if you'll obey my commands, you will be my people and I will be your God. And you'll live long in the land. It'll be great. And yet, over the years, over the centuries, the curses of the covenant fell as Israel continually, unrepentantly disobeyed. And so the final curse of the covenant fell in 586 BC when Jerusalem was sacked and Israel was exiled to Babylon. They were taken as captives of King Nebuchadnezzar. All of God's promises to be their God For them to be his people, for a son of David to rule eternally, to dwell in a prosperous and peaceful land, for Israel's enemies to be subdued under their feet. These promises seem to be broken. Yet some 50 years later, around 537 BC, Jewish exiles began returning to Jerusalem. They began returning to Judah. Uh, By then, Babylon had been swallowed up by the kingdom of Persia. And so King Cyrus of Persia decreed that some Jews could go home. They could go back to their promised land. And so those obedient Jews began rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple and God's promises now of restoration. Well, they began to come true, but not exactly as Israel had hoped. Uh, Sure, they were in the promised land, but God's glorious presence was noticeably absent from the temple. It paled in comparison with the former temple. They again dwelled in Jerusalem, yes, but the son of David was certainly nowhere to be found. The son of David wasn't ruling a global kingdom. Instead, Judah was a tiny province in the vast Persian empire. You know, God's people had finally kicked the idolatry habit, but what was to show for it? Only a half-baked temple, Persian overrule, and the seeming absence of God's presence. Was this all that God really would do for his people? And thus we arrive at the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, 460 or so BC. We'll be in verses 1 to 5 this morning, uh, and today's sermon will be a little bit unique. We normally walk through a passage, kind of just verse by verse by verse. Uh, We're going to do that, but then we're going to drill down on one particular question, which you'll see over the course of the sermon. We're going to go into a topic about why God shows favor to Israel and not Israel's enemies. Uh, So in these first five verses, we won't have any subsections, but the main idea of our passage is simply this. God is glorified through his electing love. God is glorified through his electing love. So look with me, beginning in Malachi 1.1. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. And Edom says, We are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Amen. Well, verse one is simply the title page as it were the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. We don't know anything else about Malachi other than that his name translates as my messenger. And so you notice that it says that the word, this is the word of the Lord to Israel and literally it's come by the hand of Malachi. So what we have here is nothing less than a personal address from God to his people. From God to Israel, from God to you. The preacher, whether Malachi or myself, is insignificant. This is God's word. And then the drama begins in verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Okay, so just, you know, relationship tips. It's a bad idea. It's not a good thing if in a relationship you say to someone, I love you. And their response is, really? I'm not so sure about that. Notice here how God loves Israel. Uh, Different translations have, I have loved you, or I do love you, because the tense of the verb is to indicate it is a past love with present tense implications. I have loved you. I am loving you. Uh, This is the fundamental way that God relates to his people. You know, God's relationship to Israel was not fundamentally one of correction. It was not meant to be one of discipline. The Lord is not trying to extort something from Israel. The Lord loves them. God's fundamental orientation to his people isn't anger or disapproval, but love. And so he reminds Israel of that love. And yet, sadly, Israel, well, they don't believe God. Now, throughout the book of Malachi, if you let me, let me encourage you to read it perhaps this week. It's short, it's, I think 54 verses, um, they'll, they'll keep kind of questioning God. God will say something and say, yeah, are you sure about that? God will say, you, you have dishonored my name. And they'll say, how have we dishonored your name? It's just constantly they're, they're questioning God. They're questioning his word. And so here, here tragically, they question most fundamentally his commitment to them. Uh, Literally they say, in what way have you loved us? Israel saying, where's the proof? I mean, God, you say that you love us, but look around, God. From the insignificance of the temple to Jerusalem's ruins, to the scattered Jewish people, to our prospering enemies. I mean, surely, God, if you loved us, well, it would look differently. Friends, do you see yourself in Israel's response? You know, sadly, this doubting of God's love is something that we are all too familiar with. It's not restricted to the Israelites of 560 BC. Ever since the Garden of Eden, when sin and temptation came into the world, this has kind of been our default response to God. Uh, questioning him, doubting his word, cynical of his love. You remember in the Garden of Eden, the, the serpent came to Eve and, she's, and he said, "You know, God knows that your eyes will be opened if you eat the fruit. Go ahead, do it. What's he doing there? He's telling her, God's not actually looking out for your best interest. He doesn't actually love you. He's looking out for his own interest. In questioning God's word, Satan questioned God's character and called into doubt God's love. Or you remember, after God saved the nation of Israel out of Egypt, right? Does the 10 plagues, the Passover, the Red Sea... I mean, just like miracles on highlight reels, Sports Center top 10. This is incredible. Just miracle after miracle, the Lord providing for his people. And then what's the first, well, okay, first thing that Israel does, they praise God, Exodus 15. What's the second thing they do? They just start complaining for 40 years. Specifically, they're grumbling. They're saying, I don't think God's gonna provide bread for us. I don't know if God's gonna provide water for us. I know he did all those miracles, but, I don't know if he will actually come through for us. They questioned his goodness and provision. Israel doubted his love, his steadfast love, which Jonathan read for us earlier. And you know, friends, I trust that I'm not too different from you. Uh, When sickness hits, when our hopes are dashed, when our limited understandings are clouded, we too doubt God's love. So often we wonder, have you really loved us, God? For the Israelites of Malachi's day, again, they would have pointed to to all the supposed promises of God that had failed, okay? So for example, just give one example. In Zechariah 2.10, the Lord says, this is for the exiles who have returned. Zechariah 2.10, sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion, for behold, I come. And I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people. And I will dwell in your midst and you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you and the Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the holy land and will again choose Jerusalem. That's an awesome promise. And if you're living in 460 BC Jerusalem, you're looking at that and you're saying, that's not my experience. That's not what it feels like, God. Where's the Davidic king? Why was the lion not laying down with the lamb in Shalom? Where's the peace on earth? Why are our crops failing? In surveying their surroundings, the Israelites found ample reason to doubt the Lord. And so the Lord responds by highlighting the ways he has favored Israel. And it's interesting, he does it by contrasting Israel's fate, Israel's Uh, how they've enjoyed God's blessings with the way the Lord has opposed Israel's enemies. That's what verses two to four show us. The Lord says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. So in Psalm 136, God reminds Israel how his steadfast love has shown up in their history. Here in Malachi 1, kind of God gives the flip side of the coin. And he shows them the way he's treated their enemies, how he has opposed them. The point is this, that that Esau and Jacob were brothers. They were twins, in fact, of Isaac and Rebekah. And so God could have chosen to bless Esau, the older brother, and his descendants, namely the nation of Edom. Instead, however, God chose to bless Jacob. And Jacob's descendants, the nation of Israel. The Lord makes a distinction between the two of them. Now the Lord states, you see there that he hates Esau. In Deuteronomy, we see the Lord tell the Israelites that they are not allowed to hate Edomites, the the people from Esau. So I think what God is saying here is that uh, this love-hate contrast is that God opposes Esau that he hasn't chosen him. It's similar to how Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other. Jesus' point is that you will either prioritize God or money. And so I think God is saying something similar. I have chosen Jacob. I have prioritized, I've blessed, I've been devoted to Jacob and not Esau. I have not set my affection upon the nation of Edom. And the evidence for the Lord's not choosing Esau is what we find in verses three and four. You know, for the entirety of Israel's history, Edom was, I think, I, I think it's fair to say the chief rival of the nation of Israel. So, For example, Amos one state, Amos one states, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity, and his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon them, and it shall devour their strongholds. Uh, Edom was Israel's most violent and oppressive rival, and yet by the time of 460 BC during Malachi's day, uh, Edom had been destroyed. We're not exactly sure how. It wasn't the Israelites. It was perhaps a similar invasion to what Israel themselves had succumbed to. It's clear that Edom had been laid waste, just like Jerusalem had been laid waste. And so what God does is he contrasts the rebuilding efforts. You know, while the Lord is restoring Israel, even if it was slower in coming than many would have hoped. In verse 4, he promises that he will oppose Edom's rebuilding. He'll tear it down. For they are the wicked country. Their deeds have been evil. Uh, with the result that the Lord says that they will be called the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. And so the point we're supposed to understand from verses two to four is simply this. How can you know that God loves Israel? Well, just look at how much better he treats them than their neighbors. He opposes their neighboring kinsmen, but he has blessed Israel. And so what will be the result of this this blessing of Israel and this opposition towards Edom and Esau's descendants? Well, it's verse five. Look there, speaking to Israel, God says, your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Notice how Israel has a change of heart here. They go from questioning God's love to confessing his greatness. What happens in between to cause this turn of, this change in attitude? Well, it's the Lord judging their enemies. Uh, similarly to the way that when the Lord killed the Egyptians in the Red Sea, Exodus 14 concludes that after they, after Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore, they trusted in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And then they sang the song of the sea in Exodus 15. You see, the judgment of God's enemies evokes the praise of God's people. God would exalt, exalt himself in the exaltation of his people. That's what it's going to be like on the last day. On the last day, all people everywhere will see the justice of God and they will not blame God. We will not begrudge God. We will say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. He is great to the ends of the earth. Now, the rest of the book of Malachi, I think kind of flows from these five verses. Uh, It's a fundamental misunderstanding that Israel has of God's love and his covenant commitment to them that leads them to such lackluster worship, such half-hearted devotion. That's what we're going to see, Lord willing, for the next four sermons in the next four weeks. But what I want to do now is kind of pivot a little bit, and to ask the question of why did God choose Jacob instead of Esau? You know, why is it that the Lord decided to bless the younger instead of the older twin? Israel had the covenants and the promises and the prophets and God's presence and the temple and the kings. Edom had none of that. Why did the Lord choose To bless Jacob and his descendants. Now, on the one hand, we could go back to Genesis and we could see how neither Jacob nor Esau deserved God's blessing, right? So the truth is that Jacob was a liar and a cheat and a trickster. Uh, He was not God fearing or righteous. Uh, Likewise, Genesis 25 says that Esau despised his birthright that is, his claim on God's inheritance. You know, he accounted God's word of so little value that it's less than a bowl of soup. So if we look back, we see that neither of them deserved to be chosen as recipients of God's love. But we can also look forward to understand why God chose Jacob. We can turn to Romans 9, which we read earlier, where Paul explicitly cites this passage in Malachi. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated in his defense of God's choosing, of God's unconditional election of some. So that's what we're going to do with our remaining time now. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you, it'll be really helpful to either turn back in your bulletin or your Bible to Romans 9. We're kind of just going to walk verse by verse through the middle of Romans 9. uh, Because here, Paul is explicitly wrestling with the question, Why does God set his affection on some and not others? Why are some saved while others perish? If you're a Christian this morning, why have you believed? while perhaps your sibling or friend or neighbor has not. So let's turn to Romans 9. The, the general context in verse six, Paul begins to explain why it is that only some Israelites have believed in their Messiah, in, in the Christ, in Jesus. And, and Paul says that not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In short, just because someone is biologically from Abraham, just because they're biologically Jewish, it doesn't mean that they are the spiritual seed of Abraham, that they're A child of Abraham in that sense. Just as Ishmael was physically a child of Abraham, but not spiritually, so too in Paul's day. There were those who were biologically Jewish, but who were not true offspring of Abraham. That's in kind of verses 6 through 9. The second line of reasoning that Paul provides to defend his conclusion is verses 10 to 13, the case of Jacob and Esau. Why is it that some Jews in his day believe? Well, Paul's gonna look back to Malachi 1 in the case of Jacob and Esau as evidence that God has always intended to save some and he chooses those who are gonna be saved. So just look at verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, "Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated." So this is obviously the citation of our Malachi passage, uh, And here we come to the heart of what is sometimes called unconditional election. Uh, This is the truth that God elects or chooses his people not on the basis of anything meritorious in them or good in them, but solely on the basis of his own goodness and love and grace. So verse 11 is especially emphatic on this, right? It begins, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Uh, Here, Paul is stating negatively the reason, uh, what was not the reason for God choosing Jacob over Esau. You know, it wasn't that God looked down the corridor of time, saw the respective lives of Jacob and Esau that they would be leading, and thusly he chose the the better of the two, or even the worse of the two. No, God made the determination before they were born, before they had done anything, either good or bad. And he communicated that determination to their mother, Rebecca, though they hadn't done anything good or bad to deserve God's choice. Well, then if God setting his affection upon them isn't on the basis of their doing good or bad, what is it based on? Well, verse 11 continues, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Uh, This is the positive statement of unconditional election. Notice that it is God's purpose of election that stands. It is his will that is being done. And then Paul just repeats the point, you know, to be doubly emphatic at the end of verse 11. God's purpose of election is not because of works, but because of him who calls. God chose Jacob, not Esau, not because of any good works that Jacob did. Not because he saw that Esau was a bad guy or Jacob was a good guy. No, it is because of him who calls. It's really interesting. Uh, that last statement is tautologist. That is, it is self-referential. So it, literally, God's purpose of election is because of him who calls. Well, who is the him who calls? It's God. God's purpose of election is because of God. The ultimate reason why God chooses anyone is because of God. There's no deeper reason than that. You you can't penetrate anything any deeper than God. There's nothing in the circumstances or the persons, nothing in them. Uh, But in saying this, Paul's not inventing anything new. Uh, The doctrine of God's unconditional love and election of his people is all the way back in Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy 7, the Lord states, for you you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because, what's he gonna say? The Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. God saves because he loves his people. Well, why does he love them? Because he loves them. Why does he love them? Because he loves them. Because he sovereignly chose to set his affection upon them, and he swore an oath to them, and he will not be false to his oath. He is trustworthy and reliable. Friends, this is always how it's been. God chooses his people. We don't deserve it. We never could. We never will. Uh, There's nothing in us no faith we exercise, no good deeds that we perform, no religiously promising inclinations that God sees and says, "I I want him on my team, I want her in my squad. No, God is in control. And that's why the Lord says, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. It was the Lord's choice. Uh, As one of our kids' Bibles states, I said, Allie, where's this Bible? It's great. God picked Jacob to get the blessing, even though he was the younger brother and wasn't supposed to get the blessing. But God is God, so God gets to pick. Yeah, that's basically right. Yeah, honestly, it is true. If you think about this for more than five seconds, you might ask verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? You know, is God being unjust when he chooses one person over another? Well, no, God is not being unjust when he chooses Jacob over Esau. He's not being unjust when he unconditionally elects certain people to eternal life, but it is unfair. You know, as we saw, neither Jacob nor Esau deserved God's love. (laughs) Look, Deuteronomy 7, where God's like, I love you, and that's why I love you, and I chose you. Israel was the worst. It was just like, they just sinned a ton, never trusted God, always grumbling, always complaining, and yet. God chose them. Was God being fair with Jacob? Was God being fair with Israel? Well, he was being merciful. There's no injustice with God when he bestows his mercy upon the undeserving. If God were being fair, he would not have chosen Esau or Jacob or you or me or anyone for that matter. You know, if God were fair, we'd all be in hell right now. Praise God, he is merciful. So Paul says, by no means. It is the self-determining right of God to choose. That's what Paul says in verse 15. Quoting from Exodus 33, Paul states, is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That is Moses, I set the agenda. I am the one who chooses. If I decide to set my mercy upon Jacob or Esau or Ashley or Jesse or Ian or Nick or Deanne or Dan, I'm God. that's, That's my right. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is what it means for God to be God. Therefore, Paul concludes again in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Okay, why did you choose God? Because he chose you. Why did he choose you? Well, it wasn't based on human will. As if, You really wanted to be saved and therefore it was your willing that God saw and was on the basis of which he chose. Neither was it human exertion as if God saw that you were a really religiously promising individual. You'd be really devoted to Bible study and prayer and evangelism. And so, ha, I will save Holly Carton. It's not why. No, it depends on God. God who has mercy. But God is in control, not just over those who receive salvation. He's also in control over those who do not receive mercy. You see that in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Notice that in Pharaoh's case, God raised him up for God's purpose, namely to show God's power and thus glorify God's name. Make no mistake, Pharaoh was a wicked sinner. Pharaoh hardened his own heart Pharaoh sinned egregiously against the Lord and against the Lord's people. And yet the Lord hardened him in his rebellion. And so, thus, verse 18 restates his previous conclusion. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, if you're tracking and understanding Paul's depiction of a totally sovereign God, If you've been following Paul's logic, again, Paul is just kind of so tight in his logic that you're likely thinking verse 19. If you read verse 18, you will probably think verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? You know, if God is hardening Pharaoh in Pharaoh's resistance, is Pharaoh not morally blameworthy for his actions? which Paul has basically three answers. First, in verses 20 and 21, Paul says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? In short, we are totally incompetent to judge the Lord God for his work in creation and salvation. You know, we have such limited wisdom, such impure motives, such folly in our own hearts and lives. To accuse God of injustice is the height of arrogance. He is perfectly wise, totally just. You know, we're, we're like Job, accusing God of failing to govern the universe properly when we ourselves understand it so little. You know, we understand physical, the physical world you know, just an infinite, like, infinitely small amount compared to how vast this universe is. How much do we understand of the spiritual realm? It's all by God's grace through his word that we do. Uh, and yet we are so limited in wisdom. For us to accuse God of wrongdoing is as crazy as a piece of pottery telling the craftsman how she is to do her task. It makes no sense. God doesn't answer to us. So we have no right to accuse God. Second, we see that God has the right to do what he wills. Paul states, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Uh, Just as Jacob and Esau were in one womb, I think that's Paul's tying back to that one womb, Uh, God has purposed from the one lump of humanity different endings. And so too, God has the right as the divine creator to fit some of humanity for salvation and others for damnation. He alone has rights and authority over the clay. As Psalm 115 states, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. God has the right as the potter to display his glory in the creation of different pots, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. And so then third and finally, and this will be the end of our Romans, time in Romans. In verses 22 and 23, uh, we see that in fitting some vessels for mercy and others for destruction, uh, God's glorious mercy is most treasured. God's glorious mercy is most treasured in this way, the way this way that God ordains salvation. So, so you, we can actually break down this third point into two others, uh, for God having mercy on some but, but hardening others. So, so look at verse 30, 22 rather. Reason 3a, why it is good and right for God to have mercy on some but harden others. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction. Why does God not choose everybody for salvation? Because God desires to show his wrath and to make known his power. Uh, In short, God's glory is less fully known, that is his value and his beauty and his worth is less displayed and less treasured and enjoyed if his wrath and power are never demonstrated. Just as God raised up Pharaoh to show his wrath and power against him and thus to have his whole name proclaimed to the ends of the earth, look what God did to Pharaoh and Egypt. Well, so too, God has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. God loves them. God made the whole world. He loves the whole world. And yet it is also true that for these individuals, they are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Their own sin has prepared them for destruction. God has hardened them in their sin. God chooses not to show mercy but to demonstrate his wrath. Friends, if this does not lie you out prostrate before the Lord, I don't know what will. I mean, I think the reason why Romans 9 is often so difficult for us is because it is a frontal assault on our human sensibilities in many ways. And sometimes our man-centered thinking. I heard it said that Romans 9 only makes sense if you believe God is more valuable than the entire universe combined. And that if you were to love supremely every single individual in the world, the whole creation, but fail to love God, that you'd see that sin as the worst sin to be committed. Uh, That God is to be treasured above all else. And if we don't understand that, this is just not gonna make sense. Even if you do understand it, it's still hard to, for it to make sense. That God desires to demonstrate his wrath in the destruction of some. And yet, what is the ultimate and final and biggest goal in God ordaining this to be the case? Well, it's what we find in verse 23, reason 3b that God unconditionally elects some to life, sovereignly hardening others in their sin and rebellion. And it builds off verse 22. Okay, so God desires to show his wrath and make known his power. He's endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Okay, so why does God choose Jacob and Israel or you or me? He chooses people before they were born, irrespective of them doing good or evil, not at all dependent upon human willing or human exertion, but only upon him who has mercy, him who calls in order to make known his glorious mercy. That is the ultimate and final reason why God does what he does. You see, it is against the black backdrop of our sin and divine punishment and the wrath and destruction that the brilliance and beauty of the gospel shines brightest. God sovereignly and unconditionally elects to life so that you might marvel at his goodness and mercy and grace. So you might treasure it and value it all the more. If salvation were universal, not only would God's wrath and power not be displayed, which God is worth being worshipped for, but his mercy would not be treasured as highly, right? If there's no wrath, if there's no hell, well, mercy, I mean, it's his job to give it. We, we all get it. it it's, just, it's just there, every single person. But when you see the mercy of God in choosing you, it should evoke praise and worship and wonder. It it should cause us to marvel that it is all, and I mean all of grace. It is a gift. The gift is bigger than you may have thought it was. You thought God gave you a gift this big. No, it's way bigger. It's like infinitely big. It's infinitely in the past big, infinitely in the future big. It is because of his love for you big. It wasn't anything you did. It wasn't anything you could deserve. And if you can't do anything to deserve it, you can't do anything to undeserve it. His love for you began not when you got converted. His love began for you in infinite eternity past. And if God's love has no beginning for you, it can have no end. You are secure in God's love. He's always loved you. And so that sin that you struggle with, you cannot disqualify yourself from his love because his love was never based upon your righteousness. It was not based on how sincere you were. It was based on God and his mercy. I hope, friends, that you will come to enjoy God more deeply and glorify him more fully when you see and rejoice in the truth of God's unconditional election. That is why God chose Jacob. That's why God chose Israel. That's why if you are in Christ, God chose you. To use the language of Ephesians 1, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace to the praise of his glorious grace so let me conclude with three final thoughts these will be mostly brief this doctrine that God is God and God's gets to decide is sometimes known as Calvinism I don't care what you call it not a great name for it in my opinion I don't care what you call it. A few of you over the last year have come up and whispered to me in hushed tones of voice, Scott, Pastor Scott, I'm not a Calvinist. Can I still be at this church? (laughs) The answer is an unequivocal yes, absolutely. Uh, The Statement of Faith, the reason we chose the 1853, New Hampshire Statement of Faith, is that a Calvinist and an Arminian, that's somebody who believes slightly different things about the basis of God's election, Uh, The statement of faith was written so that we could be happy members of the same church. We could love one another, partner together in the gospel, pray for one another, encourage one another. Uh, So if you find some of this difficult, uh, join the club, number one. We're all trying to grow in our understanding and application of God's word. Uh, Let's let's continue talking afterwards. Uh, And let me just even say slightly autobiographically, I can remember the first time I really heard clearly some of these claims being promoted. Uh, my, my first reaction was to uh, type into YouTube, why Calvinism is wrong. <laughs> so not exactly a paragon of unbiased analysis. Um, that's number one. So number two, if, if you don't fully understand this, you've got questions. If God really chooses unconditionally, do we have freedom? Uh, Can we really be held accountable for our actions? Uh, These are great questions. Let me encourage you to keep asking them, going to the Bible for answers, thinking hard about this. Uh, Tonight, Lord willing, we're going to pick up kind of the the extended edition of this sermon. So Lord willing, that'll be tonight at the evening service at 5 p.m. I think the Bible is absolutely, positively, super duper clear that God is totally sovereign and in control and man is totally responsible. So we are not robots. Uh, you are really responsible for the choices you make. So make good ones, godly ones, God-glorifying ones. Uh, Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out, right? So this is not a case of, oh, I wish I could come to Christ. I guess I'm just not elect though, right? No, we are responsible for our actions. In Acts 2, the apostle Peter preaches to the crowds and he, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So how these two realities of God's sovereignty and mankind's responsibility, how they are both true, which again, we'll talk a little bit more about tonight. You know, it's a mystery uh, how exactly they interact. But again, there's just a lot about the world that I don't understand. I don't assume that physics is untrue because I don't understand it all. Uh, The Bible says that God is in control and that we are responsible. And you know, I guess this makes sense. If God is infinitely wise, uh, I am not. And so I'm not surprised when God does things that kind of confounds my expectations. When God does things that I don't fully understand, his ways are higher than my ways. There are going to be things that, if I could fully understand God, that would be a good piece of evidence that I have made this God up. But it would make sense that if God is really God and we let God be God, well, he's going to do things that sometimes bewilder us. And it's the better part of faith to take him at his word. And so third and finally, again, we'll kind of touch on this tonight. What's what's all this supposed to do for you? Uh, Why does the truth of God's unconditional election matter, of Jacob or you or Israel or whomever? It's what we read about in our statement of faith earlier. It's that election completely excludes boasting and promotes humility. uh, Because we see that we have contributed nothing, and I mean nothing, to our salvation. Uh, The statement of faith says that it promotes love. It's where we all started in Malachi 1. God's love, God's electing love is to evoke our loving response. Uh, this doctrine evokes prayer and the greatest possible exercise of human means because the same Paul who wrote Romans 9 also wrote Romans 10 about missionaries who was all about you know, the book of Acts, preaching the gospel all over the Mediterranean. Uh, it's what Paul, the same Paul who wrote In 2 Timothy, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, You see, a high view of God's sovereignty and salvation should not spur us on to laziness, but to working hard in prayer and evangelism. Again, more about that tonight. And then finally, it should evoke praise, it promotes praise and trust in God. Again, that's the whole reason God set it up this way, that as we imitate his mercy, we do so in praise and trust to God. Uh, We who have received mercy now love to show it to others, get to praise God for what he has done for us. So friends, does God love you?